Hello, church family. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Acts 4, verses 5 through 12 in the CSB translation. Uh, if you have a Bible or device, I'd encourage you to turn there. Again, that's Acts 4, verses 5 through 12. Uh, while you're looking that up, my name is Kevin Funk, and along with my wife, Christy, my beautiful wife, Christy, we've been atten attending Crosspoint for 18 or so years. Uh, we have one daughter, Madison, who is 22, uh, and uh, one grandson, Rowdy, who is 10 months today. Yeah. Uh, we also lead a community group every Wednesday, and uh, yeah, we just love seeing our home filled with whoever God brings to our doorstep. We uh, uh, truly enjoy it. So let's hear God's word. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts 4 there. That's where we'll be this morning. We are uh, in a series through the book of Acts, and we are in week 7, and we are in chapter 4 this morning. Uh, as we get there, I just want to encourage you uh, in to be a people of prayer. Our, our God is sovereign and more than able. He's both near and far, and as a result, he's both near uh, and uh, majestic and on high. And so as a result of that reality, we pray. And so uh, in light of the last week, but just in light of the world as it is, whether it's the last week or uh, the weeks up ahead. So how do we pray? Well, we serve and worship a God of life. And so we pray for the protection of life that has been made in the image and likeness of him. We serve a God of peace. So we pray for conflicts and wars to cease. A God who is just, and so we pray for justice over evil and unrighteousness. A God who is true, so we pray that what is true may be known and falsehood may be exposed. A God who is all-wise, and so we pray for wisdom for those in leadership. A God who is light, and so we pray that the light would overcome the darkness. We serve and worship a God who grieves and comforts. So we grieve with those who grieve and pray for our God of all comfort would comfort those who are afflicted. A God who holds his church secure in his hand. And so we pray for the global church, our fellow siblings in Christ who are seeking to do ministry in the name of Jesus in the midst of conflict and chaos. We serve a God of hope. And so we pray as a people of living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray as people who are expectant and waiting for his victorious return where wrongs will be made right. All things will be new where the presence of sin will be no more, tears will be wiped away, death will be no more. And until that day, 
we pray. We pray as a mission people, a people on mission who want to see the gospel go to the unreached, for it is only the gospel, only the good news of Jesus that actually transforms a human heart, that only radically realigns it to a love of God and as a result, a love of neighbor. So let's be a people of prayer for a God is sovereign and he is more than able. In John 15, Jesus is preparing and teaching his disciples. And he said this in verses 18 through 21 in John 15. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master since they persecuted me. Naturally, they will persecute you. And if they'd listen to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you on account of my name, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Jesus is giving a fair warning to his disciples, the ones who, minus Judas, are now leading the New Testament church. And he's telling them years ahead, since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. You're following in the same footsteps. Jesus is Lord, teacher, good, and loving master. So it's natural to assume that we, as his people, his servants, his disciples, his students, will follow in the same way. Jesus says this in verse 21, they will do all this to you on account of my name, for they've rejected the one who sent me. So the opposition and persecution will be the, in the, as a result of the name of Jesus. For Christ followers are publicly confessing through our words and our way of life, that our faith and trust is in the name of Jesus. We bear his name. And since the incarnation of Jesus, him taking on flesh, dwelling among us, his ensuing earthly ministry, we know that at the name of Jesus, some scoff whereas others are saved, some reject whereas others receive and are saved. Loved ones, where are you? Are you bowing your knee to Jesus in worshipful, saving trust, or are you scoffing and rejecting? We read in Philippians 2, verse 20, that at the name of Jesus, one day in the future, on the day of the Lord, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And for followers of Jesus, from the church of Acts to present day, we are saying, we're not waiting until the day of the Lord, because then it will be too late. No, we're bowing our knee to Jesus as Lord now, because he's too good not to. He's too good, too good not to put our faith wholeheartedly and in him and follow him wholeheartedly in this life. Until the Lord returns in victory, making right the wrongs, bringing justice to injustice, and fully and finally, finally vanquishing the enemy of our souls, until that day we live in these, in these last days where there's persecution and opposition associated with the name of Jesus. His words in John 15 are true. So we should not be surprised by persecution when it comes for the apostles in Acts 4 are not surprised by opposition in the slightest. They know who they're following. They saw him. They saw him walk through persecution that eventually led to his death. Following that moment in John 15, they, they saw how it went from there. And even more so, they, they know that the story did not stop there. It continued on, resurrection on the third day, ascension to heaven, one day returning, and on such a day, every knee will bow. And for these apostles in Acts 4, and us to this day, as his people, 
we are joyfully and humbly bowing our knees to him in worshipful trust and dependence in this life. For we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we have found life and salvation in his name. In the first three chapters of Acts, in many ways, it is up and to the right. The church is growing by thousands. Growth is off the charts. And then here in Acts 4, we get the first recorded opposition to this new church. It won't be the last instance of opposition because, again, the words of Jesus in John 15 are true. The worldwide movement of Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth has always had threats, primarily around three realms. The sinful, self-centered flesh of people both in and outside the church, the world and its patterns and influences that are focused on sin and self, and our spiritual enemy who's prowling around looking for someone to devour, looking to tempt and lead astray and ultimately destroy. But we can take great confidence and hope in another of Jesus' promises that he gives to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, saying, and I tell you, our Peter, and on this rock, I, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jesus has been building his church from Acts until present day. And the gates of hell, despite its threats, will never ultimately prevail. Here in Acts 4, spirit-empowered, resurrection-fueled momentum is on the side of the apostles. And yet, the Jewish religious leaders are seeking to stop this momentum. And so how do, they, how do these apostles face opposition? Well, we will see as they trust in the name of Jesus, it produces in them loving boldness of speech and courage in their conduct, which again, shouldn't surprise us for that's what they saw in Jesus. They saw loving boldness in his speech and rested secure courage in his conduct. Last week, Kent did a great job walking through Acts 3 and the healing of the lame man and what resulted as, uh, as a result of that. And, and this public hearing, you know, this public healing, let alone the, the very public nature to the ministry since Pentecost is now leading to opposition. So verses 1 through 4 in, in chapter 4, while they, that's Peter and John, two of the apostles, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The church is growing, again, by the thousands. Threats may come, but the movement continues. And the eternal kingdom, whose king of kings rose from the dead, it's advancing, it's growing. So then this morning, we pick it up on the next day. Verse 5, Peter and John have sat a night in custody. Verse 5, the next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? So these are all various parts of the Jewish religious leadership. And this is the same group that had condemned Jesus to death. The ones who were threatened by the name of Jesus and so behind the scenes are scheming, 
leading up to trying to convince the Romans that Jesus is a threat and he's got to be killed. And all these people were a mixture of both uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. The power of the group primarily was with the Sadducees. So who are they? Well, they're a group of Jewish people who didn't believe in, in the resurrection from the dead. They denied the supernatural and that a spiritual realm existed. They played along well with Rome in order to protect their status of power with the Jewish people. They played the political game for their own self-interest and power. And so in short, what was happening in Jerusalem since Pentecost, thousands of Jews turning from a works-based religion and turning toward the Lord Jesus and his good news of grace, turning from bowing a knee to these religious leaders and instead bowing a knee to Jesus alone, repenting, believing in his name, going public through baptism, renouncing that old way of life that these leaders were seeking to hold on to and turning from that and walking in a new way, saved by grace alone through faith alone. This spirit-led movement is destabilizing to the self-interest and power of these Sadducees and Pharisees. The kingdom of God was disrupting their small K kingdom, but that's what the kingdom of God has been doing ever since. Ever since Jesus came in the flesh, disrupting our small K, our little kingdoms, so that we might repent and realize how worthless they are to give our life to and how worthy he is to give all our life to. So imagine a semicircle of people with the high priest in the middle. There's a picture up on the screen but it gives you a sense that there's multiple rows. Peter and John are there in the middle. Upwards of 50 to 70 are gathered, and they, are asked, and they ask, by what power or in what name have you done this? What is the this? Well, it's the healing of the lame man in Acts 3, but it's all that's taken place from Acts 2 until now. The preaching of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus, that thousands are saved, that thousands are baptized. See, this group of religious leaders are assuming that power lies with them. And they haven't given or granted the apostles the authority to preach, baptize, or heal. They assume that power is theirs to grant and theirs to withhold because they're trusting in their name and they reject the name of Jesus. And they've been opposed to Jesus since the days of his earthly ministry. For instance, in John 11, we read this, verses 45 through 48. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, this, this religious gathering, a gathering of religious leaders, and, and were saying, what are we doing? What are we going to do since this man is doing these signs if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus is disrupting their little kingdom, their small K kingdom, disrupting their power, their influence, and they want it to stop, assuming it will be at his death, but it doesn't stop there. In fact, it only spreads farther and faster than it did before because it was part of the Father's sovereign plan, turning what was meant for evil for the good and the saving of many lives. By what power or in what name have you done this? Name is not just a random title. 
name equates to the person. The name of a person then and now represents, a, represents one's character, their personhood. One author wrote, the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus Christ are linked. Jesus' name and his power, authority, and personhood are one and the same. The name of Jesus embodies who he is. In Luke 10, verse 17, after the ministry of Jesus has begun, he, Jesus sends out 72 disciples to go do ministry in his name. And Luke writes this, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. As Peter wrapped up his message, message in Acts 2, where he has detailed out who Jesus is, he says to the people, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In his name there is forgiveness. In his name there is power over spiritual darkness. In his name there is all authority in heaven and on earth, including authority over creation. So in the Gospels and here in Acts 3, in the name of Jesus, the blind, the blind receive sight, the lame get up and walk, the sick are healed. By what power or in what name have you done this? The question is not asked innocently, but with indignation, anger, frustration, Asked by the elites, the powerful of the Jewish community, and a couple former simple fishermen, Peter and John, who three years plus prior had dropped their nets, saying, no, we're no longer going to live for that small kingdom. No, we're going to live for the king of kings. Jesus, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. We're, we're all in on you. We're following you. Peter and John, who'd witnessed his arrest and death, scattered in fear, and yet had witnessed his resurrection, are now filled with the Spirit of God. They stand in front of the group that had condemned Jesus to death not that long ago. And so who will Peter and John live in awe of in this moment? Who will they revere? Will it be the 50-plus in front of them or the one who's reigning and ruling over them? Will they fear God or fear man? Whose will will they submit to? Will they look to protect their own name, their own life, or proclaim the name and life of Jesus? Verse 8, loving boldness in their speech and courage in their conduct. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter's words are clear. They're not vague. They're not ambiguous. It's loving boldness in his speech. And at the same time, He's respectful. He uses their titles to address them. Not some derogatory name. He uses their titles. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not implying that Peter lost the Spirit somehow between Acts 2 and this moment. Remember, when the Spirit takes up residence in a believer's life, it's permanent, it's not temporary, and it's all the way through this earthly life. Rather, Luke is saying that Peter's being led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit is enabling him to speak with clarity and with boldness. 
One author wrote, No one attribute is more needful today for Christ's witness than Holy Spirit boldness due to Holy Spirit fullness. And Holy Spirit fullness comes when we abide in the Lord, remaining connected to Him, forsaking sin and selfishness, when we enjoy the grace of God, when we dwell in His Word, when we dwell within the family of God. Notice that in Peter's words, he doesn't point to himself or John as if they did the healing or that it was by their name. He points up, if you will. Here's who Jesus is. It's the same pattern he followed in Acts 2, same pattern he followed in Acts 3. This Jesus whom you crucified has been raised from the dead. He's declaring that truth to a people, the Sadducees, who deny the resurrection. I love that Peter's basically saying, so we're, we're being examined here because of a good deed done to a man in desperate need. He's exposing the self-serving motives of the leadership. That their interest is not in the man who was healed, but in themselves. It's the same group who was enraged with Jesus in Luke 6, when he heals a man's crippled uh, right hand, but he does it on the wrong day. He does it on the Sabbath, and they're enraged by that. In verse 11, Peter quotes from Psalm 118 verse 22, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone, a, a verse that he will quote in 1 Peter chapter 2 later on, because such truth was coming to pass here. The, the builders, these leaders were rejecting Jesus, but despite their rejection, he has become the cornerstone, the foundation, the footing, the one who is eternal in whose name for all those who build their life in him and on him, they will never be put to shame. Daryl Bach writes, writes this as it relates to the context of what's happening in Psalm 118. The enemy at the time would have been nations opposing the Jewish people. Now, the opponent here in Acts 4 is the Jewish leadership. And it's ironic, it's a tragic reversal of positions. Peter's message, your plan to stop the work of Jesus to stop the name of Jesus from spreading didn't work. God raised him to life. You were wrong. You're still wrong. Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, and you tragically still continue to reject him. And Peter goes on, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Salvation from what? When the angel appeared to Joseph, telling him that Mary was pregnant, Matthew 1, 21, the angel said this, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the perfect one, unstained by sin in both his birth and his life, the son of God will come and live and die the death that the sin of humanity demands. Romans three twenty three gives us the sobering reality that, that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect in our obedience. None of us can get through even 10 commandments and come out with an A+. And the result of our sin is death and separation. But then Romans 6.23 declares to us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So while we are all born in need of salvation from our sins and the wages of them, Jesus, who is both Lord and Messiah, has come to rescue us because he loves us. Because he loves us. He gives to give eternal life to all those who put their trust in his name. 
Peter's saying that salvation is found only in and through Jesus. And he's speaking. He's speaking to religious people who instead are saying, no, through their way of life, that salvation can be found through their ability to obey the law and their ability to keep the commands and their ability to clean up the outward part of their life while their inward still remains far from the Lord. But the outward looks good. And Peter's wholeheartedly rejecting that, saying, no, salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. I've never jumped out of a plane. Some of you have. Some of you have paid money to do that repeatedly. It's awesome. You're more courageous than I am. When you jump out of a plane, you're putting your wholehearted faith and trust in the parachute attached to save you or the parachute attached to the person attached to you to save you. The object of your faith is the parachute. It's not in your ability to fly. It's not in your resume. It's not in anything other than the parachute. So to become a Christ follower means that you have put your wholehearted faith and trust in the person of Jesus. He is the object of your faith, the one who is always faithful, the one who has a flawless resume. Loved ones, in whom are you placing your faith into? In the name of yourself, in your supposed power, in your imperfect character? Or are you placing your faith in the name of Jesus and, and his power and his steadfast, perfect character? Acts 4.12 is a verse that reveals to us the, the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one enters into a relationship with the Father except through the Son. The road is narrow. There is only one road. There's not multiple paths up the mountain. Acts 4.12 also reveals to us that all are invited. All are invited to trust in Him. All are invited to repent and walk on that narrow road toward eternal life. That Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. To rescue the, wand to rescue the wanderer, make clean the prodigal and the proud I'd imagine this moment following uh, verse 12 is a quiet one, or it could be utter chaos. I don't know. But what follows is verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Uneducated, untrained men. Meaning Peter and John and the, the other apostles lacked formal training in the Jewish customs and standards of the day. The ones who had been formally trained were in the semicircle in the rows around Peter and John, but not Peter and John. And yet they spoke with clarity. Leaders could see that. They could hear that through loving boldness of speech, through courageous conduct, that they'd been with Jesus, that their words, their way of life were a reflection of Jesus. These leaders are thinking, we thought we killed him. We thought we killed him. And while he doesn't stand in front of us, his people do, and they look and sound like him. Which makes sense. Because the object of their faith is Jesus, not themselves. The object of our faith is who we are growing up into. Peter and John aren't seeking to become a better version of themselves. They're seeking to become like Jesus, so that the world around them would ultimately see and hear the name of Jesus through them. 
Verse 14, and since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, which is this council of leaders, they conferred among themselves, they go into executive session. So we got to do this in private. Saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any, far, any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in his name again. So they called them, called for them, ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Notice that the leaders didn't try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, if it's possible, do it now. Do it now, right? Let's nip this thing in the bud. Now's the time. One commentator wrote, had it seemed possible to refute Peter and John on this point, how readily the Sanhedrin would have seized the opportunity and had they succeeded, how quickly and completely the new movement would have collapsed. But to the resurrection of Jesus, they had nothing to say. To the healed man in Acts 3, they have nothing to say. It's irrefutable. Hundreds of witnesses. The leaders want them to stop preaching and spreading good news. And yet they also have a healed man in front of them that they can't deny. The healing was not temporary. It was a genuine miracle. At the end of this passage, we're told that he was lame for 40 plus years, like the guy's old as dirt. I can make that joke because I'm over 40. <laughs> but Luke throws that detail in to be like, it's been four plus decades. He's been lame. A genuine miracle has taken place. Completely lame to completely healed. Not temporary for the cameras, completely healed. The leaders are saying we can't deny the resurrection or the miracle of the healed man, and yet we're not going to repent. We're not going to bow our knee to Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Their hearts remain unmoved, for their hearts are still cold and calloused to the name of Jesus. Verse 18, so they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The apostles get off with a warning, because ultimately true power doesn't reside in the name of these religious leaders, nor any created man or woman, including you and I. Real power is only found in the name of Jesus. The self-righteous leaders are ultimately helpless to stop the movement of the gospel. They're trying to silence and control what can't be silenced and controlled because the church was on, it continues to be on, an eternal mission empowered by a supernatural God. Pastor Tony Morita points out the leaders are asking the wrong question. The leaders are asking, what must we do to keep our power? When they should have been asking, what must we do to be saved? That question is keeping some of you from crossing the line of faith because you're unwilling to forsake your little kingdom. You're unwilling to lay it all down and follow the king of kings. Don't wait another day. A warning is issued which then sets up the apostles for further punishment if they refuse to heed this warning. It warns them of further social and legal consequences they will face if they keep speaking, and yet the apostles keep walking by faith. They keep speaking with loving boldness, and their conduct is fueled by resurrection courage. Verse 19, Peter and John answer them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what has been done. 
For the sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Whoa. <laughs> Peter and John and every believer before and after are called to a higher obedience. An obedience that stands above the commands of any religious and political system. And when the commands of the earthly system come into collision with the eternal and good commands of our God and his word, when obedience to the lesser authority causes you to disobey the higher authority, the lesser authority loses every period, single period time. Every time. The council has commanded them to disobey the Lord Jesus and his commission to go and make disciples, to teach, to baptize, to be witnesses of his testifying, or to be witnesses of his testifying to the name of Jesus. And I love the word that they use, unable. We can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We are witnesses, and earthly perse persecution will not change our identity as witnesses. Jesus had said this to the, to the disciples in, in Matthew 10, verses 16 through 20, which we see come to pass here in Acts 4. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak for you will be given what to say at that hour because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you, sending you out like tender, innocent sheep that are protected and led by the good shepherd, sending you out to be wise, discerning, blameless, entrusting yourself to the father who loves you, the son who saves you, gave up his life for you, the spirit who is empowering you. The persecution in the book of Acts is somewhat foreign to us in our nation. And yet in our growing post-Christian world, opposition is not and won't be on the decrease in the years ahead. It's only picking up pace. At one time in our nation, it was culturally advantageous to confess the name of Jesus. And yet it produced a pocket of people who were called, or you could call them cultural Christians. They played the part outwardly. And yet inwardly, their faith was not in Jesus. It wasn't like they're going hard after Jesus or growing up into him or living on mission for him. Cultural Christianity gives a, a false sense of salvation, thinking you're saved by being better than your neighbor, by that you're saved by cleaning the outward. Sound familiar? By doing religious things. Nowadays, that cultural Christian group has waned, and yet it's still very prevalent in our context and where we live. But it's waned because in many ways, it isn't culturally advantageous anymore to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so my convictions and my beliefs are a reflection of him and his work. Such, such orthodox convictions lead to labels like bigots or you're judgmental or you're a speaker of hate because those convictions come into collision with the convictions of the culture. So I believe it would be terribly naive to think that persecution for our faith in Christ won't come our way when Jesus promises that it will for his followers and no political nation is saved from that promise how that has been playing out in your life or will manifest itself in our worlds is an unknown. What is known is how you and I are called to live as witnesses for Christ. And we follow in the pattern of Jesus 
who was like a sheep among wolves, who was shrewd and innocent, who was bold and loving in his speech and courageous in his conduct. As it relates to opposition, I think there are two extremes we must avoid. One is the person who thinks that they won't face it and often takes the approach of, well, let's just avoid speaking the truth in love. Let's just remain quiet. Especially, and particularly, in relationships like that are close to us. I'm not talking about social media. I'm just talking about the people the Lord has providentially placed around us. The other extreme is the person who seeks to manufacture opposition and persecution around every corner, seeking to create it by their harshness. The late Timothy Keller wrote in his book, Evangelism, as it relates to this growing church in Acts, he said this, the church was both attractive and growing, yet hated and attacked. And we see that here in just the first four chapters. This description of the early church cuts us two ways. If on one hand we experience no attacks or persecution for our faith, it means we simply are being cowards. We're not taking risks in our witness. We're not being bold. On the other hand, if we experience an attack without fruitfulness and attractiveness, for instance, if we get lots of persecutions and no praise for our love, it may mean, it may mean that we are being persecuted for being harsh or insensitive or presenting points of view in an excessively forceful way. Jesus said, we would only be blessed if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's quite possible, indeed, it's very normal for Christians to be persecuted, not for their faith, but for their rudeness, insensitivity, and lack of warmth and respect in their dealings with others. Insensitive and harsh Christians will have persecution, but not praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise, but not persecution. Keller finishes with this, most Christians whose walk with God is weak actually get neither praise nor persecution but Christians who are closest to Jesus, who have been with Jesus. Get both, as he did, and as his church in the book of Acts did. Loving boldness in speech and courage in their conduct. The apostles are following Jesus as we are, seeking to show and tell of Jesus in all circumstances and seasons, knowing that at all times the Lord is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. For its foundation is on the unshakable, unbreakable, unmoving cornerstone of Jesus Christ, not on any human created person. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May we find great joy and rest in following Jesus, adopting his attitude as a servant. And where our earthly lives will be marked by suffering or hardship or persecution, we know the story does not end there, for it didn't end there with Christ. He has been highly exalted. One day his people will be highly exalted, entering into eternal rest, joy, and delight. Mission will cease. Eternal, eternity for worship will commence. May we be found faithful in this time as his servants 
in this place that the Lord has placed us into. We're going to sing one song. We'll give our offering during this last song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that the gates of hell will never prevail against your church. We praise you for beating death and sin and the devil. You are highly exalted. And as your people, we desire to highly exalt you in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We want to live for your praise alone. Where we are prone to live out of fear of what others think, increase our view of you. Where we are prone to be impatient and angry with those who've been, who we've been sent to witness to, increase our love and compassion. Where we are prone to lose hope, increase our understanding that your resurrection gives us living and literally undying hope. When we are prone to stay silent, when we've been called to speak, increase our courage. And Spirit, speak through us. May our words always be gracious, seasoned with salt. May you help us know how to speak and share with those around us in a way where they would see and hear you and not us. Remind us of how sweet the good news is to us and how sweet the good news is to those who have yet to hear and respond. Thank you for the gift that it is to bear the name of, of you in our daily way of life. Jesus, we entrust ourselves to you, our King of Kings. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Amen.